Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. As I'm sure you all know by now, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade by a 6-3 to three vote. The decision returns the issue of a woman's right to control her body and health care for women back to the states. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrest, illegal searches, racial profiling, and jail abuse. He has argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He is attorney John Burris. As always, John, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with both of you. It's a bit of a sad day for me. Uh, given the, the decision that was made uh, by the Supreme Court, not unexpected, but still, once it happens, it's still um, a reality that you have to deal with. Two questions uh, for me. Uh, first, I, I think the the cake was baked when the court took the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Because uh, they didn't have to take it. It was as Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh both said during their confirmation hearings, settled law. Second, uh, so so I think they took it because this was their opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade. And second, are there broader implications here as Justice Thomas now wants to reconsider access to contraception, same-sex marriage, intercourse between consenting adults of the same sex, and, and data rights. So while the opinion does not explicitly strike down the right to privacy, it seems to provide a roadmap for this conservative majority that has uh, stated many times that they are deeply skeptical of the principle. Absolutely. Uh, totally right here. I will say that you know, that um, Thomas after, had a 40-year wait almost for this to occur. This was his game plan at the very outset. And to his, to, to his credit, I mean, he played the long game, and he waited and waited and waited until he got these particular group here. Uh, he never thought there was a right to privacy uh, in the Constitution, and he has always railed against it whenever he had an opportunity to do so. So now what he has done is taken this case, along with the others who had the same view. I mean, Alito was always very much clear, clear about the issue uh, and no right to privacy. And the others that we saw, they seemed to be locked up and barrel. And they all took the position at the, at the, uh, that their, at the um, confirmation hearings that it was settled law. Well, that to me meant, and I understood clearly, that doesn't mean it wasn't reversible mm-hmm. to me because we've had many, many decisions that are reversed um, down through the years. So it was not um, surprising in the sense that these people who got, a, who got chosen were had as a game plan, no matter what they said, was to reverse Roe versus Wade. So they only acted out. And, and, and to be honest, this is a political decision that was made by the politicians. This is um, McConnell and all the uh, right-to-life people um, that have been 
promoting this particular issue for over 50 years. One antidote to this, I'll just let you guys know, I was in law school when this decision was made, Roe versus Wade. And my professor at the time, my evidence professor, Professor Lowenthal, he went totally crazy when he heard this decision and that he was against it. And he, I can hear him now saying, it's an abomination. It's an abomination what the court had done. And I'm certainly now, he's rolling over in his grave wherever he is and, and saying, finally, finally, I can rest in peace. So there's been that strong, strong view about uh, this for, for many years. The question that we now have that is most concerning, I think you raised at the outset, what are the ramifications of this? Because Thomas raised real questions that there's no right to privacy in the Constitution, which then means from his point of view, all the decisions that gave people rights, you know, from same-sex marriages, you know, uh, consenting relationship between uh, partners, sexual partners, uh, even contracep- contraception. They rule that there's no right to privacy that says these are, should be protective rights. This is horrible in that sense. Now, also should know that just because it's happened on the federal side doesn't mean at all that it's outlawed in, in the state areas. The states themselves have to have their own laws making sure uh, they're outlawing abortion. And many states have done that. And many of these states have what they call trigger law, which means that if Roe versus Wade was reversed, then it would automatically uh, put in place the laws in their state, which says that abortion is outlawed as well. So half the country probably is going to be that way in the future. And um, I don't think that's going to be uh, certainly the case in places like the Northeast um, or, or the, out the far west and maybe in some portion of the Midwest. But rest assured, there's a huge burden that's being placed on women, and it's, it's pretty shocking that they would take rights away. But on the other hand, these things are rooted, honestly, they're rooted in religious beliefs. This is what they said, uh, religion ought not be, um, uh, should be promoted. But quite frankly, part of the underpinning of this is a, a religious beliefs about when life began to not. So that's where we are now. Do you think that, um, or is there a way that the this, you know, basically interpretation about the right to privacy could also affect police-related stuff, Fourth Amendment, maybe Fifth Amendment cases? Well, the Fourth Amendment is clearly established uh, as what it is, uh, and so and people have constitutional rights there that are clearly established within the Fourth, Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment, all first, fourth, all throughout the Ten Amendments plus the Fourteenth Amendment. So they're not. I don't really see those kind of rights being um, uh, called into question uh, because those are constitutional rights. What the what the what the Thomas um, uh, uh, group basically says that there's no right to privacy, and to the extent that right of privacy have been given, and to some extent under the, the Liberty Clause, they said that doesn't exist. And so this is really uh, a throwback to interpretation that uh, that uh, these. Um, men and women really see the Constitution as basically uh, a right-to-life kind of Constitution and that the, and that the, there's no privacy right that women have to, to interfere with, with the right of a, of a new, potentially newborn. Doesn't that really contradict the overall premise of the first 10 amendments to the, 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 the Bill of Rights? In that, I was always taught that as many of them have been called negative rights, they're there to protect the citizens 
against overreach by the government. That's why many of them start with the government shall not. And so what these justices seem to be doing is giving the government more power than the individual citizen seems to have been granted by the Constitution. And the second part of that is we hear conservatives Mitch McConnell and ad nauseum talking about activist judges, activist judges. Oh, we can't have activist judges. But through the through the Federalist Society, that seems to be exactly the type of mindset that they were looking for, and that's exactly, or those are exactly the types of mindsets that they've put to control the court. Absolutely, and the activist judges only apply if it was promoting your philosophical interests. And in this particular case, I mean, the activist judges, these people all took a position that they were not activists, but at the same time, they were, all, they were all promoting a political agenda that is set forth by the Republicans, but, but the right to life people. So those, those are, that's activism because the law was already, has been established. And so activism means you want to change it, and, and as opposed to letting it be settled law that, that they claimed it was. So that's the irony of all of this. It's, only, it's like whose ox is being gored. In this particular case, to the extent that they were trying to promote a political agenda, you know, right to life is a political agenda promoted by a vast segment of the population. And to the extent they were promoting that agenda, to, the, to me, that meant they were not activism. That was not an active judge from their point of view, although I would consider it to be such. But that's the nature of the beast that we're dealing with here. And that um, this thing is so political, that it's so driven by ideology, and one's perspective, but there's really no right and wrong answer here. The issue that I have here is that you give people rights. You know, one of the problems of this country has always been giving people the rights that they that they were entitled to. But these folks are saying they got more rights than they were entitled to because these rights were not provided for in the Constitution. Well, to some extent, most rights were not provided. They had to do a bill of rights in order to do it. So, the taking of these rights is 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 a, is, a, is a, a, to coin my law professor's statements, an abomination to, to take away rights, and particularly the rights that have been relied upon for 50 years. Women throughout this country have relied upon them. They've planned their lives around them. And 67 percentage of the population support a woman's right to choose. So it, uh, it's, it's really uh, a, a minority segment of the population deciding how the rest of us have to lead their lives. If you could explain to our listeners what Congress could could theoretically do and what the, um, the, the the stumbling blocks, the things that would stop Congress from 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 being able to address it. Of course, Congress can, in fact, enact a law that sets forth the privileges, uh, a right to choose uh, for a woman. They could do that. That obviously requires the classic kind of construction of how a bill gets made. And that is you've got to have both House and uh, the Congress, um, both the Senate and the House, to agree, and then the president to sign. Here's the situation. We all talked a lot about filibuster. Well, we could probably get a bill passed in, in, uh, in the House of Representatives that basically uh, reinstates principles of Roe versus Wade, but in order, and you would probably have a majority in the Senate to do it, but in the Senate, because of the filibuster, you need 62 thirds votes. Well, there's not two-thirds votes because the Republicans, for the most part, are against it. 
and 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 probably some some Democrats as well. So, you know, the votes are not there. But from a political point of view, the, and this is one of the things that, as I always say, politics matters, voting matters, and this is a classic example of voting matter. And, and the reason why this is important, the, the reason why we're here now, is because of the lack of voting by the Democratic Party, uh, their people, in the last two elections. Because if they had won, you know, after Clinton, after uh, Obama, and they had won with uh, Hillary, we wouldn't have had these three appointments that have been taking place. And so now we're kind of stuck with them, and I'd say for the next 50 years we're, we're stuck with them. So now, as I said earlier, it doesn't mean a woman is not going to have a right to have, you know, or be precluded from having an abortion because, Right now, it's a state issue. The feds have said, we're out of this business. This is not out the, law. The, federal, the Constitution does not apply here. And, and so, therefore, if you want to have an abortion, the states have to make their own decision about that. And many states have decided that they do have a right to an abortion. And, many, and some have done so, and those people will be available. The issue that we have now is that many of the southern states, in particular the red states, and not all just red states, have developed, developed, put together what they call trigger laws. That is to say, if Roe versus Wade was reversed, then any right to an abortion in certain states would automatically be eliminated as well. So there's about 25, 26 states right now that have these kind of provisions in them. So the state rights will ultimately conclude that uh, that there will be no right to abortion in those states as well. The issue that's now going to happen is that there are going to be people coming from certain states uh, to other states to do it, and the question of the state then leaving, well, they're going to have laws that are going to prevent that from happening. So that becomes a real issue as well. <sighs> the mess continues. John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Okay, take care. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams reports U.N. Human Rights Office confirms Israeli forces killed journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Quote, perpetrators must be held to account, said a spokesperson for the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American columnist, syndicated editorial cartoonist and author, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So confirming the findings of several major journalistic investigations, the U.N. Human Rights Office said today that Israeli forces fired the shots that killed beloved Al Jazeera journalist and American citizen Shanine Abu Akleh and wounded her colleague last month as they covered a raid in the occupied West Bank. Quote, All information we have gathered is consistent with the finding that the shots that killed Abu Akleh came from Israeli security forces. We have found no information suggesting that there was activity by armed Palestinians in the immediate vicinity of the journalists. This is according to Ravina 
Shamsadani, uh, a spokesperson for the High Commission of the UN. So basically, uh, Ted, she was assassinated by the Israeli security forces. She was. And, you know, aside from the usual dreary uh, media cycle and government response of denial, uh, ch- dis- uh, dissimulation, changing the story uh, finally before ultimately having to admit what was obvious from the start. What interests me here is the fact that uh, what this says about the nature of the operations of Israel of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, on the occupied West Bank, uh, they obviously do this all the time to other people, to civilians. Uh, who are just walking around and minding their business, I mean, and who are not armed. Uh, So, you know, the only reason we know about this and that we're talking about it and it's a story uh, to any extent that it's a story in corporate media is because, of course, she was a notable uh, journalist and uh, and very well known and, as you said, beloved. So, uh, you know, to me, it's 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 an insight into the way the uh, residents, the stateless residents, of the uh, Palestinian West Bank live every single day. And uh, that's the part that I I would like to see some people focusing on that. The other thing, I think, is the stark contrast between how the mainstream media here reacted to that and Jamal Khashoggi, whereas, you know, a government kills Jamal Khashoggi and there was, you know, some what of an outrage. And, you know, he's and now even now, um, Joe Biden still gets some heat from the media like, yo, you're going there, but you're not dealing with that. And when it comes to um, an instance where an uh, um, a member of the press is assassinated in cold blood by the Israelis. The media simply just says, well, you know, we'll look into it. Oh, we'll wait to see what the Israelis say on their um, investigation or whatever the case may be. Ted. Well, I think the thing, in fairness, Garland, I mean, I think there's like different optics here. I mean, the Jamal Khashoggi, I mean, first of all, Jamal Khashoggi uh, also, um, you know, was a Washington Post correspondent. Uh, She did not work for an American media outlet. That makes some difference in terms of caring about your own. Um, But I think also, you know, this happened in a consulate, right? I mean, he was lured into a consulate and, and murdered at the order of the chief of state of a major country, you know, this was a soldier, uh, you know, who was just basically business as usual. I mean, in some ways, it's a it's a horror of its own because of what I said. This is this is routine. This happens in the West Bank all the time. Um, so, but it's I do see why the Jamal Khashoggi thing has had more legs in the West, just because it happened in a consulate, and there's a recording that anybody can listen to on YouTube of Jamal, of Jamal Khashoggi being murdered because the Turkish government was tapping the Saudi consulate and released the audio because they were so furious that they did that the Saudis carried out this act on Turkish territory. What about the fact that both of these individuals were American citizens? And whether it's the Trump administration or now the Biden administration, that really seems to have absolutely no impact. You've got uh, the Secretary of State saying, well, we're going to wait and see what the evidence says. And, well, we're going to wait and see what the Israeli government says. And you got uh, Joe Biden saying during the campaign that, you know, Mohammed uh, Bonesaw is a murderer and we're, you know, we're, we're not going to talk to him. And, and now you're going over there hat in hand 
and, and, and begging him for oil. There was a point in time when people thought that their that American citizens thought that their passport meant something, that their government had their back. Now, uh, hey, it's, you're just out there on your own. Well, I think, look, I think your, uh, your broad, broad point is, is completely correct. And I've always kind of thought about that. I mean, like an American passport really doesn't mean a hell of a lot. Um, just for the record, though, Khashoggi was a uh, permanent resident who was a green card holder. I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, a, I'm sorry. A, a green card holder, though, is effectively uh, the same as a U.S. A citizen, citizen right. except they can't they just can't vote. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like it's just a formality. They could he could have become a citizen really anytime he wanted. Um, he just would have had to you know file some paperwork. But once you've been approved for a green card, it's, you know, pretty much pro forma that you can you know, you're you're sort of a, a citizen and in all but one way. And, um, uh, yeah, so it is, it is interesting. Uh, I mean, it is, it is, it is gruesome. I mean, I can't believe that the U S government, you know, even still has diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia, considering that they carried out this act. I mean, even if they had done it in, uh, let's just say a cleaner way, let's just say they had, you know, whacked him in the street or something in, you know, it, that still, you know, made it look like an accident, run over him with a car. Um, but you know, the fact that they did it this way, it's like, it's just impossible to look away. I mean, I I think the Saudis did it this way because they wanted everyone to know that they were gangsters. We're sending a message. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of like, you can't touch us. We do whatever the hell we want. And that's, and that's how it is. And, uh, you know, I think if you're the U.S., you can't, ex- you can't accept that. You've got to say, uh, you know, we don't, we're not going to let ourselves be pushed around like this. Let's go to another story, and this is important, and I'll tell you why. There's an article, Washington Post, a number of other places where they say the um, basically that the, uh, the Ukrainian troops are withdrawing from Severodonetsk. I'll tell you why. Because it reminds me of the Azov Battalion being evacuated from uh, from the Azov uh, complex. When you are attempting to hold a city and it is attacked and you run out the back door— and that's not withdrawing. That's retreating. Treating. And they act like they're like, well, you know, we were sitting here and we're like, it's kind of boring in Severodonetsk. Let's, uh, you know, maybe we'll try someplace else. Maybe the food's better or something in another town. No, they've been trying to hold this territory. And like all the other territory in the eastern uh, Ukraine, they're losing it. And this is they're still trying to hold this narrative up, which I think is very dangerous because this thing's going to collapse eventually. Ted Roll. Well, no, I agree. I mean, look, it's obviously, look, we know from history that sometimes the outcome of a war is hard to discern in the middle of it. I don't think this is one of those times. I don't think that we're really in the middle of the Ukraine-Russia conflict here. I think, uh, the, I think the lay of the land now is not a hell of a lot different from, first of all, uh, really from, from where it's going to, where it's going to end up. Uh, I think Russia is going to consolidate its gains it's going to uh, it's going to make sure it controls the donbass and it's and you know and that's going to be pretty much it um, you know in the end uh, russia's going to get what it came for and western media has egg on its face already i mean they they can spin this all they want i don't know why they're spinning it this way what they should be doing for their own good really is to start laying the groundwork which i have seen some people do in mainstream media uh to say like look this this isn't going to go on forever 
obviously Russia is not going to lose, to say the least, because, you know, Russia is winning. So um, but but for the most, it's weird that they're saying, uh, well, you, that they're still they're still, you know, pushing the propaganda line because it's so untenable. And it, it does like you, Garland. I'm, it makes me worry that uh, they'll do something rash in order to, uh, you know, turn their fantasy into a reality. Does that indicate to you that there is still some conflict or contradiction within the the American foreign policy mindset that they haven't? and they being this nebulous blob, that there's still points of contention, still war, still warring factions within the United States policy elite, and they haven't quite figured out what direction they're going to go. I think that's true. I think that's always true. Um, you know, there's always, con- there, there's always conflicts in the ruling classes, and, uh, and then the U.S. elite is no exception. Uh, you know, I was thinking of like someone like Fareed Zakaria, Who's definitely you know part of the blob, uh, mainstream uh, CNN guy, uh, neighbor of mine actually, who I've seen on the street. Um, you know he's uh, he's he is starting to uh, you know speak with you know sort of recognize reality and say, look, uh, you know this is the, the Ukrainians are going to have to settle. Um, they're going to have to pretty much give uh, Russia what it wanted, and um, and so you know, that he's clearly not part he's not pro-russian obviously so they're you know they're they're getting they're starting to get real um and those contradictions are going to become more entertaining to watch so you know just grab your popcorn it's going to get really silly in the next month or two well the problem they have ted i think is also this what russia may have wanted look you know what you may ask for early in the conflict when you don't have as much leverage, when you get once you get leverage, you're going to ask for a whole lot more. I don't see how there can be a diplomatic resolution because Russia doesn't need one because they're winning. And ultimately, when the whoever approaches Russia and says, OK, what can we do to win? Russia would, will probably say an unconditional surrender and everything we want or we'll just keep fighting and take it anyway because we're going to get it. Your decide, decision, do we get Get it now or get it later. And Garland, to that point, I think you're absolutely right. And I would venture to guess that the pressure on President Putin is internal pressure from the, his own citizens in Russia saying, look, we want you to go in here and kick butt and take yep. names and don't come back until everybody's <laughs> kicked and name is took. And so I think, you know, I think that's where I think his pressure comes from, Ted. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the question is, what if, what more beside beyond beyond Russia's initial four demands uh, are they going to ask for? I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, if speculating, one thing I, I don't see Russia being able to deal with is Zelensky in charge. Uh, you know, going forward, um, uh, you know, I don't know how that would be stage managed, but uh, you know, he it just he's sort of an untenable figure. I think the U.S. deals with him. Oh, he's the scapegoat. Before Once they lose, he's be, the scapegoat. Before Russia has to deal with him. I, yeah. I, I think the United States says, well, it's his fault. He's got to go. Oh, now he's gone. Now we can come to a resolution here. Well, that is kind of like what the U.S. did, uh, you know, has done in the past. Like they certainly the U.S. treated uh, its relationship with Noriega in Panama mm-hmm. and Saddam Hussein in Iraq as sort of an employer-employee conflict. So that could happen the same way here. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Tell Fareed, next time you see him, I said hello. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. 
Likewise. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Our next guest has a great piece in the L.A. Progressive entitled The Anatomy of Inflation. He writes, the focus of the U.S. media and economists for the past several months has been increasingly on inflation. In recent weeks, however, U.S. policymakers awoke as well to the realization that inflation is chronic, firmly embedded, and growing threat to the immediate future of the U.S. economy. For further insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California, and is the author of the recently published book, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Glad to join you. So I listened to Fed, Fed Chair Powell yesterday talking about the problem with inflation, and he was downplaying the possibility of a recession. He stressed the economy is well-positioned to withstand higher interest rates, saying the U.S. economy for now is strong, spending is strong, consumers are in good shape, businesses are in good shape. And that got my attention. But what really got my attention was his saying, with a uh, 3.6 or 4% unemployment rate, that the job market is strong and that that's one of the things that's going to enable the United States to deal with this uh, inflation and avoid recession. And when he said that, I said, well, you obviously, uh, Chairman Powell, don't know anything about the unemployment rate and what that number really means. I said, you need to talk to Jack Rasmus. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, you know, the Fed uh, formally has uh, uh, two objectives, you know, in its mission. And one is uh, uh, to take a look at the labor market, you know, which is a, uh, a proxy for uh, uh, employment, unemployment and the real economy. Uh, growth, and then the other is is inflation. Uh, and when he says, oh, the labor market is strong, what he's really saying is, uh, I can ignore uh, ensuring that uh, uh, the real economy and growth and employment um, remains uh, stable, and I can really focus on inflation, raising rates, even if that, uh, you know, knocks the uh, real economy and jobs, you know, uh, you know, underpinning that a bit. I, I, I can I can take some pressure there of a rising unemployment and so forth because it's so strong. And he looks at, you know, the 3.7% unemployment rate, which is just for full-time workers, you see. It doesn't have anything to do with the 50 million part-time uh, uh, freelancers, independent contractors, uh, uh, temps, uh, you know. It, it, he ignores that. that. That's their favorite statistic, the U-3 unemployment rate, only full-time uh, workers. But even that 
is showing signs of weakening already. You know, the labor market always lags behind the rest of the economy. It's, it's what we call a lagging indicator. And uh, you can see right now that in those fast growth sectors like uh, uh, tech and so forth, uh, they're already having hiring freezes. And some of them are already announcing uh, uh, layoffs coming. Uh, and... Uh, that that sector is going to weaken appreciably. Even unemployment claims are creeping up. Uh, you know, uh, every week we have unemployment claims uh, uh, for even uh, those full-time workers are creeping up. So you got to consider there's a lag here in the labor uh, markets and quote employment. And when he says it's strong and everything, uh, he's not looking at the trend and looking forward. He's using it as an excuse to say, I can raise interest rates even faster and whack the real economy even more. Uh, and uh, that's what's going on. Dr. Jack, how long, based on what's happening, I mean, I've seen some stats the, uh, here recently that say that the um, the housing segment is just about dead right now, and it's, uh, you know, going to be going in the in the wrong direction really, really soon. How long, or now, let me ask you this, uh, let me put it this way. I remember in 2008, at some point, we started seeing numbers, 700,000 jobs lost a month, 800,000, 500,000. Are, do you expect us to start to see that kind of shedding of jobs anytime soon? Is this something that will create that? Or will it be people have the jobs, but the, with the, with the, with the uh, you know, the cost of everything going up, they just won't be able to afford things or some combination thereof? Uh, no, I don't I don't see, uh, you know, 700,000 jobs lost uh, at this point. You know, you, what you're going to have is a is a steady shredding of the labor market and, and a steady creeping up of unemployment until these uh, interest rate hikes really fully take effect. You know, they're they're expecting to double the rates, the policy rate, as they call it, by the end of the year. You can see more 75 basis point hikes and so forth. And I've been saying for Oh, almost a year that here that um, once the Fed raises rates between four and five percent, uh, maybe even less, uh, it's going to precipitate the recession because the economy is already quite weak. Uh, this is unprecedented to be raising rates like this with an economy that's already weak. I mean, look, we had a contraction of the economy already in the first quarter, minus one and a half percent, which is significant. Right. We have the Atlanta Fed, Federal Reserve, its shadow GDP predictor, saying that the second quarter is flat and may even come in as a contraction or even if it's just a you know, slight growth, it's stagnant. And we're raising rates most rapidly since 1994 here. Um into that kind of an economy, I think that it's not going to take much more than uh, three and a half, four percent. Is uh, the rates are now 1.75, uh, in other words, doubling them to really precipitate a recession. And you can see already the weaknesses in certain areas of, of the economy. Um, you know, the Fed has this beige book, a regional report, and in areas like uh, uh, mid Atlantic states and Chicago, already you see contractions going on in, in uh, manufacturing. Uh, the PMI, uh, Purchasing Managers Indexes, came out here. Uh, for the U.S. economy as a whole. And uh, we got a sharp slowdown in the PMI composite, in other words, for services and manufacturing, 
a big, big slowdown from 53-something to 51. 50 means that the economy is perfectly stagnant. Uh, it's an index. Uh, but more important, the orders, the orders are contracting. They're down to 47 uh, so we've got coming behind it a contraction in manufacturing, and then you have obviously the contraction already well underway with housing starts and so forth in housing. So housing and manufacturing are, are stagnant and contracting. That typically spills over into services with, with a lag. Uh, the economy, the picture is not robust even though inflation is robust, because the inflation is supply-driven mostly. It's not demand-driven. If it were demand-driven, the economy in the last six months would be you know, going bonkers, but it's not. So that means the supply side, global supply chains, the Russian sanctions and commodity speculation and global commodities inflation, and now uh, we got inflationary expectations that have set in. Uh, so... Even Powell in his statement came out and said, well, I can't do anything about supply side. So, you know, OK, we're going to whack demand. Well, demand is pretty damn weak, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they're raising mm -hmm. rates like this. They're, this is this is a, a strategy for chaos in the economy coming six to nine months from now. And I think to add fuel on the fire, uh, we, we're here in in the in the Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland, Virginia area. And there was a story on the news yesterday about rent prices going up exponentially, which then took me to look at what's happening nationally. And uh, a monthly look at average rent prices, rent price trends across the United States, nationwide rent prices have continued their precipitous climb. And whether it's a one or two bedrooms, they're up. A one bedroom is up 25.5%. A two bedroom, 26.8%. That's a national average. They say that on the coast, whether it's the East Coast or West Coast, that those rents are going up even higher than that. Jack, this is not good for the immediate future. Let me add this. I just had a friend of the family, a senior, say that, their um, rents going up next month, the, you know, the yearly, whatever, 400 bucks a month. There you go. 400 bucks. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Realtor.com, one of the industry sources, uh, just reported last week that uh, uh, rents have gone up 26.6%, 26.6 as a national median, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, you know, low-income low places, the rents, you know, are, are, are lower and so forth. 26.6% nationally. That means in certain urban areas is higher than 26.6%, right? Uh, probably 30, 40% in California and in New York and place, places like that. And then just yesterday, the, a stat came out that I think it's like 8 or 10 million people are behind in their rent payments, you know, I mean, the rent thing is, uh, is that demand? Is that, uh, you know, rents are going up because the renters have so much money? No. Uh, once again, that's, that's price gouging by renters, uh, you know, renters, mm -hmm. right? Not, not rentees. Price gouging to make up for the lack of rents while they were 
you know, controls on rents and so forth, forbearance on rents. So uh, just like big corporations now, uh, who during uh, 2020, uh, you know, had some loss of profits because there was no demand, everything shut down. Uh, now they're recouping with the price gouging going on. Well, rent and landlords are doing the same damn thing. Who's caught in the middle? Well, it's the workers and uh, low income and even median, median income uh, working class families who are really taking it in the air with this. Inflation isn't eight and a half percent for them. Inflation is double that, at least when you look at rents and you look at gasoline prices that they're paying and, uh, you know, other food prices and so forth, um, you know, this thing's going to explode if it continues. And that just quickly reminds me of, uh, the, remember the guy, Jimmy McMillan, who was the chairman of the New York party, the rent is too damn high yeah, party. Yeah, the rent's too high. <laughs> rent is too damn high. And uh, he ran for president. He ran as a Republican for president and he ran also to be the governor of New York. But And he's right. The rent is too damn high. Um, another uh, uh, interesting article, Kremlin Momo reports about Germany nationalizing Nord Stream 2 section. Um, and apparently they're looking at, uh, at at taking a section of the Nord Stream 2 and using that for um, to connect to their LNG. And here's the thing about it. There's two issues here, Dr. Jack. One is, can they get enough gas? Okay. But two is, if they get LNG gas from the U.S., it costs five to ten times as much. So you solve your problem in actual gas, but in prices, in price, it doesn't work, Dr. Jack. Yeah, well, the problem with LNG gas from the U.S. is that uh, there aren't enough ships and port facilities uh, to bring in enough uh, ship-based gas from the U.S. to offset the gas from uh uh, you know, in Germany from from Russia. And that assumes uh, uh, the gas that, uh, you know, used to flow from Russia, not even Nord Stream 2, but Nord Stream 1 and other uh, pipelines. Uh, you know, there's estimates I've seen is going to take two years at least to upgrade the European port facilities and even longer to build more LNG ships uh, to bring the natural gas from, from the U.S. Uh, so the U.S. Uh, and Biden and the Europeans are scurrying around trying to see where else they can get it. Maybe they can get more from uh, from uh, Norway, maybe more from Algeria, maybe more from Qatar, or Qatar but they don't know for sure. Uh, and in the meantime, Russia's turning the screws and slowing down the gas flow. Europe's going to be in deep doo-doo when come this winter. There's no way they can store enough gas. They don't have enough facilities. Uh, and, of course, that means a big supply problem in driving the price of natural gas through, uh, through the roof in Europe. And in the U.S., as they ship more natural gas from the U.S., creates a supply shortage here in the U.S., which the you know, U.S. oil and gas companies like because that means it raises mm -hmm. the price of natural mm -hmm. gas here. And by the way, you know, the national, natural gas companies are the oil companies. Right, right. Uh, that comes from the fracking mm -hmm. fields. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. France 24 reports Ecuador rejects indigenous protesters' demands 10 days into tense standoff. Thousands flooded the Ecuadorian capital of Quito Wednesday for a 10th day of demonstrations over living costs in an ever-tense standoff between the government and indigenous protesters that has left two dead. Again, that's France 24. What's happening on the ground? Well, let's go to Quito, Ecuador. For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a Sputnik News analyst who joins us from there, Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, welcome back. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate you having me on. So uh, give us an idea. What's what's the feeling on the ground uh, 10 days into this standoff uh, with thousands of people protesting? Wyatt Reed, what's happening? Great question. What's happening is something of an indigenous uprising. This is going on in Quito, but all throughout the country. Uh, we're approaching our second week, and we have seen numerous fatalities, uh, largely coming, uh, largely being caused by the police. Yesterday, there were another two. One of them uh, <clears throat> was shot at very close range uh, with buckshot in the chest, and died of a penetrating chest wound, according to Ecuadorian human rights groups. Um, This has been uh, kind of the theme of the protests so far. The uh, administration of Guillermo Lasso has so far refused to uh, dialogue with the indigenous protesters. Um, Then that is who is is leading uh, this protest is the indigenous, the largest indigenous group of Ecuador. And so as, as you correctly point out, you know, these, these have been stretching on for close to two weeks. People are, are demanding, they have, they have 10 main demands and they're almost entirely economic. Uh, they have to do with instituting price controls. They have to do with increasing gas subsidies. So uh, indigenous people in Ecuador, like in much of Latin America, have been historically excluded from economic development. And this uh, means that they are the most vulnerable to these recent price increases that people all throughout the region have been and all throughout the world have been dealing with. Um, but that uh, these are these are problems that don't just affect specifically the indigenous population. So you've seen uh, quite a bit of crossover appeal here. Uh, this isn't this isn't purely an, an indigenous event. This is something that uh, has uh, widespread appeal among working people throughout Quito um, and, you know, just in informal reactions, informal interactions, I should say with people here in the city, um, support for this protest movement, for this national strike, I should say, uh, isn't limited, you know, to to indigenous people. Uh, it's really got a, a broad base of support. Um, people seem to be getting the understanding, you know, that it could be indigenous people today, uh, but tomorrow it could be me. Do you know, is there, um, was is this just a matter of things, um, you know, building up to the point of frustration? Or do you know if there was some particular event that triggered um, the outbreak of these uh, protests? And uh, one other thing, are there um, any types of strikes or anything going on or any kind of other related actions related to the protest? Yeah, so right now what it mainly looks like is blockades throughout large parts of the city. They are periodically raised. Um, people will block, kind of jam up the traffic on um, important routes, uh, especially in 
uh, roots that are important to the upper class. Um, and this, they, they maintain them and sometimes things can get a bit heated um, in their efforts to, to maintain these roadblocks. So there are a number of factors leading into this. Uh, obviously, the, the price hikes across the board were pretty much the main instigating factor. So the primary demand of the um, Indigenous Association of Ecuador, the, the Confederation of Indigenous Associations of Ecuador, uh, was to cut gas prices by 45 cents. Um, and then, you know, the same price controls for, for farm products and uh, to increase the, bud- the education budget. Um, so mainly this has been consisting of roadblocks. Uh, people will uh, throw together rocks, cinder blocks, tires, whatever it is, especially in um, wealthier sort of parts of the city or parts of the city where they're trying to uh, kind of send a message. And then uh, they maintain these roadblocks um, and things can get heated from time to time. Uh, when the police come in, they tend to use force to try to unblock these roads. And, you know, this has resulted in a number of extremely violent situations, not not just in Quito, uh, but across the country. And so this uh, <clears throat> this is, you know, primarily, as I noted, due to the price increases, the uh, inflation, all of these things that we're seeing as uh, governments in the West attempt to sanction uh, one of the world's primary uh, energy and fertilizer suppliers. Uh, We are seeing the predictable effects here in Latin America. Uh, Food prices are going up dramatically. Um, Governments are struggling to control them. And in this case, uh, Ecuadorians say that their government isn't even really trying. And that's kind of been the uh, the main issue that you hear when people talk about Guillermo Lasso. It's that they, he's he not even really seems seem to be trying to resolve these issues. Uh, very little in terms of legislative solutions being promoted by the Lasso administration. And this is a complaint that you hear uh, pretty frequently from from people across the spectrum. Um, and instead uh, of, of meeting with these indigenous protesters, the last administration has instituted a state of emergency, a state of exception um, that was only uh, just yesterday uh, defeated by uh, leftist sort of forces, uh, pro-Korea forces in the National Assembly. Uh, they were able to vote that down successfully, um, and that was a main sticking block here for dialogue between the uh, protesters, the national strike movement, and the government. This has been uh, the main the main problem here is that people were not willing to uh, sit down with the government while it was uh, basically imposing martial law on them. So now that uh, now that that is a statement, uh, state of exception has been lifted, hopefully there will be some room for uh, dialogue. Uh, although, you know, the this is obviously not something that is being done purposefully by the Guillermo Lasso administration. This is something that they were fa- basically forced into by uh, a, a p- opposition in the National Assembly. So it's, it doesn't necessarily signal uh, any real willingness to make concessions, uh, much more as it does uh, signals a willingness to respect uh, the separation of powers. But, uh, you know, with with that, there is sort of an off-ramp there that hopefully uh, people would be willing to take. 
Uh, if not, there is an impeachment proceedings that were just kicked off uh, hours ago. Uh, it's called the Cruzada Muerte, and it's basically kind of a nuclear option that uh, exists under in Ecuador under the 2008 constitutional reforms that allows for uh, basically if, if enough of people vote, if 92 out of 137 assembly members vote for this, uh, effectively dissolves the government. So that would mean um, <clears throat> new elections would be called. Um, Lasso would have to step down. Um, and so that is kind of the nuclear option that is waiting in the wings, although it's still uh, something of a question as to whether or not uh, the uh, Union for Hope party, that's uh, the sort of Correa-leaning uh, party, whether or not they uh, will have the votes, whether or not the other parties, uh, Pachacutic, the indigenous-led party, will be able to put those votes together, uh, that still remains to be seen. So looking at what's happening in the region, in the global south, uh, you've got Ecuador uh, bordering or bordered by Colombia as well as uh, Peru. And we know that there has been in the region this this uh, anti-neoliberalism. Is uh, Lasso kind of the last man standing? He's a he's a businessman and banker. So is he considered kind of the, the, the last guy holding the ground, holding the hill of neoliberalism in, in, in the region? And where is the United States in all of this in terms of the politics of Ecuador? Hopefully that question makes sense. Yeah, he definitely is in terms of Ecuadorian politics. In terms of the region, I would say probably somebody like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil might mm-hmm. be a bit more formidable of, a, of an opponent and sort of uh, – when we talk about kind of the neoliberal agenda, that's uh, <clears throat> that's certainly something that the U.S. has instituted. But even Bolsonaro seems recently, in, ter- in terms of his rhetoric, he seems to have been changing some of his, modulating some of his rhetoric, understanding that his hind parts are uh, are close to the flame as well. Yeah, I think that's a good read on the situation. You know, he's he's about twenty points behind in the polls. He knows he's got to do something if he's going to win here uh, in October. But yeah, I mean, I think you've got a correct read on the broad regional situation. This is uh, massive rejection of neoliberalism, of these kind of uh, corrupt right-wing governments that are uh, perceived to be uh, basically the root of, of most of the issues that people are suffering from here. And uh, and another sort of trend that's important to highlight is, is the way that indigenous people are kind of taking a... A leading role um, in these protests. Um, it harkens back to the situation in Bolivia, uh, in the um, you know not just in 2019 but also in 2009 and, and earlier in the 2000s when um, you had a number of uh, neoliberal governments that were uh, basically overthrown by the uh, the indigenous-led movements, the social justice movements. Um, and, you know, this this kind of, of moment is hard to separate from this broad building of power that's happened uh, throughout the Andes, throughout Latin America. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to separate the situation from this this rising uh, indigenous or indigenous nationalism, uh, indigenous pride that uh, has definitely been at the forefront of a lot of political movement, movements over the past few years. 
Did you hear anyone there talking about the, you know, the uh, the the issue, the, the war in Ukraine or anything like that? Or was that something that they had bigger fish to fry right now? Or did they connect that to this? We only got about a minute. Yeah, I think people, especially in the U.S. and Europe and the West, we have this sense that everybody else is just as preoccupied with Ukraine as our media wants us to be. But that's just not the reality. I mean, people here will look at you a bit strange if you if you kind of randomly bring up Russia, Ukraine. It's like, well, why are you talking about that? It's happening somewhere on the other side of the world. Uh, I mean, to the extent it's relevant, it's relevant because the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia have mm-hmm. had really, really uh, terrible effects in terms of food prices um, and food. You know, that's 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 what working families, the, the food cost increases, the, the fuel cost increases. That's what's hit our uh, working families hardest uh, over the past few months. Um, so, yeah, no, no, it's it's uh, it's an element, but it's certainly not at the forefront of, of people's conceptualization of what's happening here. Wyatt Reed joining us from Quito, Ecuador. Be safe. Thank you so much. Look forward to uh, having you back when you get back. My pleasure. Thanks again, guys. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune reports the world is facing a a food shortage and inflation to preserve the throne of the U.S. The U.S. claims that the rise in food and energy prices is due to the war waged by Russia against Ukraine, while the U.S. sanctions on Russia and its means of transport and payment reception indicate the opposite. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guests. Well, it's Friday, so that means it's panel time. We're joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. We're also joined by a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So before we get to discussing the food shortage, uh, we know that earlier today, the Supreme Court announced its decision and overturned uh, Roe v. Wade by a six to three vote. The decision returns the issue of a woman's right to control her body and health care for women back to the states. Steve Poikinen, uh your thoughts on uh, the Supreme Court decision. Uh, I have a couple of different ways of, that I'm looking at this right now, and one is that this seems to be an incredibly divisionary thing to do right ahead of uh, a midterm election where it looked like by every other metric the Democrats were going to get slaughtered. So I would expect them to make as much political hay out of this as humanly possible. I would expect for it to become uh, the primary engine by which they fundraise. I expect them to not talk about Joe Biden a lot. I expect them to not talk about Ukraine or the economy or gas prices a lot. I expect them to focus on this and this mostly alone. Um, I also think that this is a another step 
in undermining eventual uh, federal protections at the amendment level. I think that if um, they're successful in uh, kicking it to the states, which I'm, I'm not an opponent of states' rights, but I, I see it to where we'll get a point where you can get an abortion in a blue state. You can have a gun in a red state. You can take your kid to drag time story hour in a blue state. You can take your kid to, you know, the super evangelical indoctrination church camp in a red state. And how, but it'll be the point will be the division and the division will drive the ongoing team sports and kabuki theater uh, of red versus blue politics. Jim Cavanaugh, to Steve's point, and Garland and I were talking about this uh, earlier, and that is the even though it is such a hot button political issue, for Joe Biden to be out there talking about go vote, go vote, go vote. No, Joe, that's the wrong. We understand your point, but he needs to be articulating why this is such an issue. He doesn't have to tell people to go vote. Explain to people why this matters, and they will go vote. You don't You don't have to be standing out there screaming, go vote, go vote, go vote, because then it makes it appear as though he's politicizing the issue. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, you've got to win the issue politically among the people. <laughs> the votes will follow and the law will follow or a revolution will follow. You know, there was too much emphasis and dependence on uh, the the wonderful judges of the Supreme Court, uh, too much emphasis and dependence on the Democratic Party, uh, and, you know, not enough emphasis on the political struggle to win the hearts and minds of people over this issue. It's an issue. You have to talk to people and give the ethical political arguments for abortion rights, even to people who don't like the idea of abortion, which is not a crazy thing not to like. You know, you have to respect people. You know, the, 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 the slogans were wrong. Pro-life is a much better slogan than pro-choice. That's a neoliberal slogan. My body, my choice is a good slogan because that's the issue. You have the right to do whatever you want with what's in your body, no matter what it is. And people can understand that if it's presented, but not if you dismiss them to, to begin with. Not if you don't really, you're not willing to talk to them. Not if you depend on getting the good guy Democrats into power or the good Supreme Court justices into power. You've got to win the debate among a difficult issue of why, even if you don't like abortion, you should you should support abortion rights because, and you can do it. It's not that hard to do, really. It really isn't. No, it's not. But you've got to face and you know it, it starts with you know they're going to kill themselves on this by 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 passing all these laws which. We should press them on the logic of this. If it's the same as murder, then it's the same penalty as murder for whoever does it, for the doctor, for the woman, etc. You know, once they start having to make a distinction between, well, we're not going to give the same penalties as actual first degree murder, then they're they're acknowledging that there's a difference that has to be respected in terms of law and rights relative to women's rights and the rights of the woman who has her own whose body this, this, this organism is in. So, you know, that's what's going to hurt them in the end. I think they got, they're pushing all these laws. You know, we're going we're gonna to make everybody, uh, no, this is first-degree murder. And that's the logic of their position. So you've got to engage in this argument in a way that people haven't been willing to do because they just thought they'd be protected by the, the Harvard-educated justices of the Supreme Court and the good Democratic politicians. 
Uh, I'm going to put two things together for our first uh, segment after this. <clears throat> There's an Orinoco Tribune article. The world is facing a food shortage and inflation to preserve the throne of the U.S. That's part of it. The U.S. is going to make everybody suffer to try to hold on to hegemony that's already gone. But the second one is this, and all of us has been, have been discussing that there were going to be problems this summer, and they are starting. Protesters, tens of thousands of protesters were in Brussels. They were protesting. Some were yelling, stop NATO, spend money on food and the people. They had signs, not uh, Ukraine. And uh, we've uh, they've had massive protests in uh, the UK and the pain from the blowback from the Russia sanctions, I think, are just starting. We'll start with you, Steve Poikinen. Well, they they are, and they're only going to get worse because the noodle heads in the State Department don't seem to be in, in any kind of hurry to back off there this is this is a natural very predictable consequence of putting sanctions on the country that provides the underlying gas or underlying fertilizer or the ability for uh so many people to you know live breathe sleep go to work drive to work get get their food that kind of when you eliminate that from the entire European Union and to whatever degree they're going to try to blame this on Putin, although we had a great clip from Jerome Powell, the Fed, saying that inflation was happening well before Ukraine and just blew the whole Putin price hike thing out of the water. I'm sure they're upset with him for that. But I mean, that's what the, the narrative has been here in the States. In Western Europe, it's literally because they've killed their own food supply chain through their own sanctions. This is just the rollout of it. Jim, add this. I've been reading lately the um, the uh, Russians have cut back on the gas flow to the Germans. They said that it was because there was maintenance things or whatever. I'm not going to say that it was or wasn't. I don't know. And now um, they've said now they've said they're going to have to cut gas off completely for 10 days in July due to, quote, maintenance issues. Kind of seems like an elbow to me to some extent. But the Germans are all uh, how dare they? This is economic war. You literally said you were going to economic war with Russia. You were going to wipe out and destroy their economy. And when they throw an elbow back, it's like, oh, no, I can't believe they're doing that. I don't know. Jim, your thoughts. Yeah, exactly. I, I, how can they get away with that? I mean, we're going to destroy Russia. We're going to sanction Russia. Our purpose is to cut ourselves off from Russian oil and gas forever and never buy anything more. The Russians say, oh, we, we're not going to give it to you this week. Oh, what are you doing? You're an economic warfare against us. I mean, this is incredible. It's not credible in any any kind of logical or political sense. But this is what they're involved in. This is the, this is the, the quandary they've put themselves in, and people can see it. And that's why people are out on the streets protesting against this. You know, the EU and the United States are now committing themselves to like something like $7 billion a month subsidy to Ukraine to keep the damn thing going. It was a mess to begin with before this, this war started. Ukraine was a dependent state of the EU and the, and the United States, and it's, and it's worse now. And it's going to be all that money for weapons that to keep put money in Ukrainians' pockets. And it is going to get worse. It, it's, it's really going to start hitting when uh, cold weather comes. And that's what they're really afraid of. And they're trying to 
get ahead of that in some way that they can't. You just can't. This is what the United States is doing now. This is what the Western project is, the Western European and NATO project is. We have to isolate ourselves completely from the largest country in the world, which is the largest supplier of wheat, the largest supplier of uh, the fertilizer, essential commodities, essential metals, essential uh, energy, energy products. You can't do it. You can't do it without suffering, cre- creating enormous amount of suffering for your own population. And nobody in the, in the West has been asked whether they want to go to war here. Max Boot got on television, on MSNBC. This is our war. This is not Ukraine's war. This is all the United States' war. Well, that's the way they're playing it. But you want to have a war, you go to the Congress and you demand you have a war power, you have a, a resolution of war. And you don't just bring, drag the population into a war and have the country, the public money paying for it and the public suffering for it because you decided Ukraine is the most important thing in the world, which is not what it's at stake here. What's at stake here is the United States unipolar domination of the world is important. What I think also this this really shows is the 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 not only the moral bankruptcy, Steve, of American policy, but just how not well thought through this whole thing was. And and what I mean by that is Joe Biden told us that he was going to basically bring the Russian economy to its knees, that the ruble, the value of the ruble was going to fall through the roof or, I'm sorry, fall through the floor. And then that as a result, there would be social unrest and Vladimir Putin would be run out of run out of Russia. Well, the folks that are in control of the Russian national banks, what did they do? They raised interest rates. So that people would keep their money in the bank to earn more money in interest instead of having a run on the bank. And they did that for a few months. They weathered the storm. The bank stayed stable. You know, Putin says, well, you don't, you know, you're going to take me off the Swiss system. Well, I'm going to demand that you buy my gas and my wheat and you buy it in my currency or we're going to trade in your in both of our currencies. What happened? the price of the ruble goes to the roof. So it seems as though, as the adage goes, United States is playing checkers, Russia's playing three-dimensional chess. Steve Poikinen. You're correct on that. There's a, li- there's a little bit more I want to uh, expand on there. But to underscore a point that Jim was making, I saw a report, I think it was out of ProPublica, but I'm not entirely certain, so please don't you know pin me to that one. Uh, but the, the U.S. media has spent more hours talking about Ukraine and covering Ukraine than they did so far in this, like, what, three and a half month period, four month and a half month period, four month period, than they did for the entirety of the Iraq war. Wow. Think about That's that in terms of hours of coverage for one particular event, this is truly the, the wag the dog war, where we had to sell the war on TV because what's happening on the ground has nothing to do with reality whatsoever. Um, it's, it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's beyond any operation that, that I've ever seen. It's at a scale that I did, according to the State Department, isn't slowing down any time this year. In terms of the failures in foreign policy, in the ability to to even approach a negotiating table, it, 
all of the mistakes are going one particular direction. And, and I, I don't think that any of us would disagree with that. And I do think that all of us have been at some point or are currently active chess players. If all of the mistakes are going one direction and you can't even, you can't even mess up in your advantage once, it tends to look a lot less like mistakes. It tends to look like that's how you set out to play the game in the first place. Gentlemen? In fact, in fact, Steve, I'm glad you said that, and Jim, respond to that point, because I remember very early on in this, having listened to Scott Ritter and, and listened to, what's his name from the CIA? Ray. Uh, Ray, Ray McGovern, that, that, the, that, that Russia had a different agenda here, that they were saying, you have to listen to what Putin is saying. I'm not trying to take over the Ukraine. That's not my objective. I'm not trying to reunite the USSR. That's not my objective. I'm not trying to take over the world. That's not my objective. I want to denazify. I want to get these weapons out of the Ukraine. And see. so the agenda was different. And therefore, the assessment of the action had to be different. But everybody on this side of the fence was stuck on he's trying to take over the world and it's taking him longer to do so. Therefore, he must be losing. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, they constructed a cartoon villain. You know, he's, this is happening because this cartoon villain has, is evil and has evil intent and evil in his mind. And he wants to reconstruct the Soviet Union. They, they imputed all kinds of intentions to him. Didn't listen to what he's been saying for at least eight years. Very clearly. And they ignored all the agreements that they had made about Minsk, which would have saved the unitary uh, Ukrainian state in its full borders. And now that's over because he said, if this goes on, this is now over. So they don't believe that. They, they, on the one hand, I mean, they've got themselves believing a narrative and a vision of the world, a picture of the world in which they can get away with things they can't get away with anymore. They just don't want to believe it. Uh, you know, it's extremely dangerous. You know, you have the, the they just surrendered uh, Severodonetsk, okay? A week ago, uh, Zelensky himself was saying that's the crucial element of the, the, the central part of our of the war. If, they, if we lose Severodonetsk, they just lost it. They're going to lose uh, Lysychansk, which is a twin town. And they'll be, all of those, that, that front is collapsing, and it's the major front. But, oh, that's a no, no, no problem because we got uh, uh, um, uh, who, who's the comedian who just showed up in the uh, oh Ben Stiller. Uh, Stiller Ben Stiller's on the case you know so I mean the, the ideological narrative here and the per, you know the projection of what's going on is so dis discrepant between what's going on, on the ground what's going on but they have the power to blow away the board. That's the problem. You know, it's not a chess game at the end of the day. People can swipe away the board. They can drop a rock on the board, you know, and this is what the United States and, and NATO is. Somebody here is going to have to accept defeat. And it, it's getting to the point where on the ground, it's going to be the United States, NATO and Ukraine, but the U.S. and NATO, what Ukraine is fighting for, Ukraine is fighting hard it's like, you know, you have these troops and they fight a, a losing battle for a, for a town because they're waiting for reinforcements to come. The reinforcements that Ukraine is fight, waiting for is NATO coming in directly. And that's what they're fighting for. They know they're not going to get it from a few howitzers or a few more Ukrainian troops. 
But they're convinced they can get the NATO into this, and I'm not unconvinced yet that they will. I'll say this. I'm convinced that they won't. I'm convinced that the based on history, the U.S. throws suckers and, 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 and out there, and they sacrifice them, and they all die, and the U.S. ain't giving nothing. These people were nothing but cannon fodder, and the U.S., Joe Biden is not going to break the toenail of an American for the Ukrainians, in my, uh, my opinion. Let me throw something else at you guys. It's pretty horrifying. Lithuania, um, Ray McGovern writes, the Lithuanians stick the new finger in the eye of the Russian bear. The Lithuanians have decided that they're going to ban rail traffic and now road traffic between Russian and Russia and Kaliningrad. As of now, it doesn't seem that the Russians are going to take military action. Doesn't seem that way, but it could happen. But it's a very dangerous, dangerous time, and it's a dangerous thing to do. Start with you, Steve. Well, they're they're openly violating an existing treaty to begin with. Like they're they're taking a long-standing written signed agreement that says they're not going to do the exact thing that they're doing. So they put Russia in a very 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 awkward position because they can only they can only respond a couple of ways, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, okay, look, we're we're not uh we're not going to do anything rash which is typical they're saying we're we're going to assess this but understand that what you're doing is going to have a consequence one way or another and it is up to you to decide whether to continue this foolishness or to put us in a position where we have no choice but to respond militarily and I don't know who's pulling the strings there. I don't know who's calling the shots there. I don't know what kind of hubris they're operating with. I don't know what kind of, of you know, foresight they're operating with. But what they're doing is intentionally starving people to provoke a particular response out of Russia that Russia seems to be inevitably agreeing to do unless they find some outright. Yeah, you know, Jim, here's what I think on that, too. And there are three things that I put together. Number one, the um, the Ukrainians, you know, shelled the living daylights out of some civilian areas the other day in um, in the Donbass. They attacked a, um, a a gas or oil platform in the Black Sea. And then this happened. Here's what I think. The Ukrainians are in real trouble in eastern Ukraine, and they see that this thing is going to be over, and they're trying to anger and or distract the the um, the um, uh, the Russians to either act in another way, to move in another direction, to do something, to react out of anger, as opposed to continue with the methodical way that they've been doing things. And at any rate, you get where, where I'm going. Jim. Well, let me let me add one more. One more point to that, Garland, and that's the first paragraph from Ray's piece. Lithuania is trying to create new facts on the ground, hoping to provoke the kind of response from Russia that will determine tone and substance of the important NATO summit scheduled for June 28th ah, through the yes, 30th in too. Madrid. So, so if, if, if Ray McGovern can figure that out, and Ray is a pretty sharp knife in the drawer— 
I'm pretty sure Vladimir Putin can say, you know what? I ain't doing nothing until the 31st. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and I'm winning. I'm not going away from the I got a winning hand. I'm not going to change. Anyway, Jim. And I know that there are only 30 days in June. That's why I said the 31st. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Jim Kavanaugh. Well, yeah, as I said, this is what Ukraine is trying to do. They're trying to get a situation in which NATO has to come in. They and, and Lithuania and Poland, and you know, they are anti-Russian too. They don't mind provoking this either, because now it's NATO. Definitely, with with Lithuania, it's directly NATO. So they got themselves stuck in this. You know, I think as Ray, who quotes in this article, Angela Merkel in 1997, when they when NATO issued the thing saying Georgia and Ukraine shall enter. Uh, NATO, she said, this is a declaration of war against Russia. <laughs> so everybody knew what was going on here, what this was, and it's advanced since then, in the 25 years since then. So, you know, and Russia saw what was going on and said it again and again. You've got to stop. This is dangerous. But these are the kinds of things that can come out of left field or right field or wherever they come from and upset the, the chessboard and bang on it. And Russia then has to respond in some way or another. Now, I read another thing. It was very interesting a uh, tweet thread about Russian air superiority in Ukraine and how they can't get total air superiority, strategic air superiority, because AWACS planes, NATO American AWACS planes, won't, you know, are coordinating over Western Ukraine. So that's why they're not going to attack Western Ukraine too much with aircraft. But that's the kind of thing targeting of ships, targeting of the oil platforms, giving uh, weapons that now reach Crimea. That's the kind of thing Russia is going to be forced to respond to in some time or another. So these are very dangerous things. That's why I'm saying, you know, and there are many, many voices in the United States foreign policy establishment and certainly the establishment and neocons saying we can't give up. We've got to we've got to strike. We've got to strike. We've got to strike. And before we move on to the next point, uh, with you talking about the coordination of AWACS and, and other things, uh, Jim, that what that said that can be interpreted one of two ways. It can be interpreted as, oh my goodness, uh, the United States and NATO—they've really got a command of this, and Russia's not responding. Or the other, or the other analysis could be, no, I think Russia is just too smart to fall into that trap, and they're just biding their time. And uh, as the as they said in the Middle East, you have the you have the watches, but we have the time. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And uh, uh, they, uh, 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 you know, they don't want to, but at some point they may have to respond. You know, this is the American but they're not go- But they're not going to be baited into a response. They will respond when they're ready, on their timeline, and in their manner. And then when that response comes, oh, my God, be, <laughs> be careful what you pray for. The U.S. State Department has operated as policy for two decades now, or more, what, five decades? Uh, that, that arming, funding, trading, and sending terror cells into uh, areas that they would like to destabilize or overthrow is just it, it's pro forma policy. That's how it works. That's how we do things. So if it comes down to it, and there's some sort of negotiator, whatever. There's been endless historical evidence to show that the U.S. is going to do the exact same thing with the remnants of Azov or uh, right, right front or whatever they are. Um, the, as soon as this quiets down a little bit, Macron faces five years of gridlock after stunning parliamentary defeat. This is from Politico. 
Uh, Macron is set to face a potentially tumultuous five years of deadlock after his centrist alliance fell short of an absolute majority in a parliamentary runoff uh, this past Sunday, at weeks after he was reelected to the uh, LSA. If you add to that, what's if you add to what he's going through in France, to folks in Poland and was it Hungary, Latvia, it, Latvia in the woods gathering sticks for 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 fuel, so long as the sticks aren't more than eight seven centimeters long. And you've got what's happening with German manufacturing with now that they can't get gas and natural uh, uh, oil and gas. So what we hear story after story, country after country in Europe is hardship after hardship after hardship following the, the United States down this rabbit hole. We've got for you, uh, Steve, two minutes and then we got two minutes for Jim. We've got to get out. I really think that the the controlled demolition of the European Union is well in full underway. We're, we've seen, and I know this is slightly off topic, but it's not really the the uh, the sort of socialization uh, or left leaning governments, anti imperialist, anti U.S. governments take rise in the global south over the last couple of years. I do think we're seeing a trend of people who are looking at who's been friends with the U.S. and how that's the end result of that in their country and repudiating that by whatever means they have. Uh, France, I mean, it's not the yellow vest started in 2019. That didn't really go away. It went away for lockdown a little bit, but that sentiment that we need these neoliberal empire enabling governments out that that is prevailing now jim cavanaugh yeah well this is part of you know the the the, the undermining and self-undermining of the so-called political center and you know the establishment politics and establishment social economic politics that have been destroyed and the yellow vests were a great example of that and france is a great country to look at and see what's happening. Now, I will say this, the left coalition, the NUPS, the Mélenchon coalition, is a coalition. And therefore, it's it's amenable to being splintered up much mm-hmm. more quickly than the Le Pen party, which is a national party. And that party won 15 times, <laughs> went from six to 89 seats. So you have the, the, uh, uh, the increase of the vote on the right and on the left, which is mainly a function, I think, of appeals to populist interests. And, you know, this is what's going on. And against crazy international interventions everywhere that are costly to the country. And this is a threat to the established centrist, you know, from uh, moderate right to moderate liberal mm-hmm. left, what they call the establishment. And it's all over the world. And that's what they have to fight against. And they're trying to use censorship to do that, definitely. And they're going to use certain kinds of authoritarian measures against demonstrations uh, and against domestic extremism, et cetera. And it's a tendency that's going to continue and going to increase. Whether it's going to favor the right or the left is going to a large extent have to do with how the left organizes itself. And I'm not very sanguine about that. And the one thing I, I didn't include in that, Garland, was, uh, what was it, 80,000 people protesting in Belgium against NATO? Uh, that's another example or indication of 
uh, how this is is unraveling. Steve Poikinen and D- Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen, both, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your weekends. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mint Press has a story. Meet UEA PAC, the new Wall Street-backed super PAC funding pro-Israel black Democrats. How significant of a problem is this? How anti-democratic is this? Well, let's move to our next panel. We're joined by a political activist, independent journalist, and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. As always, happy to be back, gentlemen. We're also joined by a man with a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor. He's a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. So presenting itself as empowering the black community, a new political action committee with corporate and pro-Israel ties hopes to spend millions to defeat progressives. In announcing its launch late last month, the Urban Empowerment Action UEA PAC endorsed five black Democrats with Israel lobby friendly positions. Uh, Nico House. How dangerous is this based upon the the contradictions between how they're presenting themselves and what their politics really are? Nico House. Huh, dangerous. I, actually, I'm not even sure if dangerous is the word. I'm not even I don't even actually quite understand why this is deemed necessary, because under a Biden administration, Israel has gotten everything it's wanted. Well, God, I know I know that they said a key race is the one against Rashida Tlaib, mm-hmm. but like even then, okay, you 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 beat Rashida Tlaib, and then Israel still gets what they want. You don't beat Rashida Tlaib under a Biden administration, you still get what you want. I think that the only way that this could be of some value uh, to the pro-Israeli people uh, in the pack itself could be perhaps controlling the narrative, because I will say that you know Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and the like have been at least okay on kind of bringing, using their platforms to bring attention to the atrocities that have been taking place. And I believe that this might somewhat be almost like a cleanup act after, you know, the journalists got killed, you know, young people are getting killed. It's making the news and these, these videos are going viral more and more often. But using black people specifically, um, that's particularly nefarious, considering this is the same country that was caught sterilizing Africans that were migrating to their country when, they suppo- when supposedly all Jewish people are welcome to Israel, right? And when we remember what happened, I, know, I saw one of the representatives, what Representative Williams, one of the ones being propped up in Georgia specifically, we remember what happened to Cynthia McKinney when she stood up mm-hmm. to, the, uh, to, to, to APAC and actually stood up to the, the pro-Israel lobbies. Um, they don't actually care about black people, black issues, or black Israelis, or black Jews. We know what they actually care about, and that's the, um, I hate to say it, the white supremacy Zionism of Israel in pushing that agenda. 
Well, and we know they don't care about black South Africans because the the South African government's primary sponsor uh, was Israel after uh, the United States uh, anti-Israel policies started to take effect. But, Nico, I think I have the answer to your question, and that is scorched earth policy. Right. The Zionists in Israel, they don't tolerate any dissent. They, there is no democracy. There is no space for debate. It's their way or the graveyard. And so, yeah, I was about to say the graveyard. Ain't no highway either. <laughs> no, it's their way or the graveyard. Ask uh, Sharina Abu uh, Akleh. So they will assassinate you for telling the truth. So yeah, because the narratives are leaking. They're leaking, and they're becoming harder right. and harder to control. And yeah, it may not affect them today. It may not affect them tomorrow. There you go. But they're, they, they've been around long enough and uh, short enough to know what happens over a 10 or 15 year period when these narratives do get out of control. Technology is allowing narratives to catch fire quicker than usual. Dr. Colin Campbell, uh, same, same question to you. This is a strategy, right? We already know that when it comes to the Israel lobby, it comes to groups like APAC. They already have an in with the Republican Party. We have two parties that... Um, make up the majority of the voting electorate in the United States, Republican Party, Democratic Party. If they already have inroads and with the Republican Party, they move to Democrats to try to ensure at least the mo- that most of America is supporting their governance and their support of Zionism within Israel. We, they also know, looking at the most recent election, that black Americans have an influence, a strong influence on the Democratic Party. Now, although there are a lot of policies and a lot of things that could be improved for black Americans, they still see the voting power of black Americans. So now, why not appeal to this voting bloc so that they can have even greater influence on their political influence of their positions in Israel. That's where they try to affiliate themselves with black Americans. And they've been doing this for many, many years. This is not new. We saw this during the Obama administration and the very strange relationship that the Israel lobby and members of uh, the government in Israel wanted how they wanted to appeal to black American voters, but at the same time were maligning America, who was considered America's first black president, Barack Obama, when it came to the Iran nuclear deal. So we saw this being played out. And at the same time, we do know that there are many uh, Democrats who are looking for additional funds when running uh, to overcome other disparate uh, judgments such as race, such as they have various uh, religious backgrounds. We know that Israel banned uh, Talib and uh, Alien Omar from even visiting Israel. These are our darker-skinned uh, politicians, you know, in, in various parts of the country, Michigan, of course, being one of them. So when you look at this seemingly complicated relationship, we see this as overall a strategy to try to make things more divided in their best interests. This is not surprising. It is something that's been going on for years, and I suspect it will continue to happen as America continues to become more brown, as people continue to call for divestment from Israel, especially with the BDS movement uh, gaining momentum and those calling attention to the disparate conditions in which Palestinians live under. We're going to see money uh, influence a lot of the decisions that are being made in trying to form 
stronger affiliations with black Americans because of their influence in the Democratic Party. And they know the changing perceptions about how they govern in Israel and the way that Palestinians are being treated within that same geographic region. If I could throw something else at you, Nico, the other thing I think that is conspicuous here is the Democratic Party, I think it's called Blue Pack. They've got this political action committee. And the intent is, I disagree with this completely, don't get me wrong, but the intent is to raise money. Team Blue. Team Blue, that's right. It is to raise money for incumbents. And Nancy Pelosi has said, we got to keep incumbents. We got to look out for the incumbents, raising money for the incumbents. Now, I think that's the death of a party. I think a party needs new blood and it continue should continue to push to be challenged, right? But whether you agree with it or not, it seems to be inconsistent because here are incumbents and they're like, yes, team blue, pack blue, incumbents are Rashida Tlaib. Well, in that instance, perhaps we can make an exception. But that's because your description is slightly off, Garland. It's not quite accurate. It's not incumbents. It's moderate incumbents. That is in their, that is in their language. And what they really mean is the old guard. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're there to protect. And it says this specifically. They're there to protect moderate incumbents against progressives. The system. There you the go. The system. There you go. Nico. Yeah, and, and I would say that it also represents, in my opinion, a schism within the party that I think that we've been – we've talked about this before, how there is an old guard versus a new guard. A lot of people would say, well, why would Biden run against Kamala? Or what's the difference between uh, Joe Biden – and uh, a Pete Buttigieg. Well, the, the, tr- the, the truth is, it's representation. Now, it's not the type of representation that you or I would actually care about. We want actual legitimate representation. But Kamala would bring in a lot of the Hillary camp, right? Maybe her sister, uh, you know, uh, um, like the, the young, strapping women of color, the Pete Buttigieg, the LGBTQ committee, all that good stuff. Whereas Joe Biden, as we know, kind of has shown a, a, a propensity to bring in not just him, but even the Congress, the people that they welcome tend to be um, old and white. Uh, let's be honest. Right. So when you have that situation, there's the fight because now the, the when people run, they're running whether or not they actually plan on keeping their promises. The new people are running on whatever they find on TikTok or social media, <laughs> you know, and that is a those are very popular issues to run on. And no, people don't feel like pretending like they care about those issues. Let's be honest. They're just very, very lazy individuals. And they want to make sure that they can protect their incumbency by basically saying that those new issues are dumb and, 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 and staying in office because of it. But at the end of the day, um, I feel like for and I hate to even I hate because I, I, I like I, I actually like Rashida Tlaib a lot. I just feel like she's kind of dropped the ball on this whole Joe Biden presidency, if I'm being honest. But like at the end of the day, all of them, all they're concerned about is maintaining power. Um, and it breaks my heart when I see other, you know, black politicians, people who probably started out, started out as activists, even like Ilhan Omar, uh, being co-opted, like in, in the ways that we've seen. Now, I know that this doesn't necessarily apply to them in, when it comes to the, the, the is pro-Israel pact, but we've also seen Ilhan Omar slip up when it comes to Israel because of pressure from the Democrats. And at the very bare minimum, we've seen all of them stay quiet when it comes to Israel and their atrocities when it comes to Democrats, just because Joe Biden is in office and they know that the midterms are coming up and they don't want to have to not only fight against Republicans, but fight against their own party. This, that we see, so we see the schism within the Democratic Party. We also see the schism within the activist community, like when it comes to the people of color that are running or working with them. 
And I just feel like all of this ultimately does spell doom for the Democratic Party for the midterms and for the election, because they can't seem to figure out whose side they're on outside of themselves. Colin. Yeah, I agree. I think there, you know, there are a lot of questions that Democrats, especially black Americans, will have to look at. But I don't think that this is going to be one of the overarching issues that they will be analyzing. Yes, it'll be on the back burner. Yes, it'll be one of those things that they'll be looking at. But they'll be looking and focusing on other political issues before they look at this. Why is that? Well, we do know that in order to run for election, in order to win, be successful, you need money. If you have money coming in from uh, from Israel PACs, that will be attractive. If you have um, many in the country who aren't paying attention to this issue and those who are already siding with Israel, this is one of those issues where you're not going to be raked over the coals uh, if you support Israel or if you support Zionism. I don't think that enough of the country is going to be a pay, is going to be paying attention to this issue. Right now, as we know, there were Supreme Court decisions today. There were Supreme Court decisions and overrulings this week dealing with gun laws, dealing with abortion. We're already dealing with inflation. We're already dealing with the rising prices of fuel. Um, Health care is still a major issue. These are the issues that many Americans are going to be looking at when they go to the polls trying to figure out who they want to vote for, who is an attractive politician for them. Those who support Zionism, those who are um, getting money extrinsically from political action committees that support Israel, that is not going to be one of the key issues that voters are going to be looking at when they go to the polls in November or in the near future. You're right. But, Nico, here's, here's where, and this is why I use the word danger early on in the conversation, is because, Colin, to your point, when we as a community turn to our representatives to deal with those issues, those representatives aren't there. Cynthia McKinney is gone. Nina Turner didn't get there. And why? Because their campaigns were undermined by outside money and interests particularly in states like Michigan and Georgia and Ohio that are open primaries. So these outside forces injected themselves into our communities, into our politics, and removed our representatives and replaced them with frauds like Bakari Sellers and, and I'll even throw Gregory Meeks in the mix with his uh, anti-Africa legislation. So this is why I use the word dangerous, Nico, because it is insidious, it is underhanded, and it is undermining the real interests of our community. What say you, Nico House? So I I agree. And it's also, uh, and I would like to know if Colin agrees with this, the interesting thing about the black community, and I would say even black politicians, in general, is that perhaps Israel isn't actually trying to, they're not worried about who gets elected because they do know that policy-wise they're going to get whatever they want out of U.S. politicians. However, the environment has become as such that we, and not me, you, or, or us, but the average person, they actually look to politicians to figure out what in what ways to pursue their activism, right? Because, you know, there's more than one way to get change. And although the activism itself may not influence perhaps 
the a United States politician, the activism on a TikTok or an Instagram or Twitter could potentially influence European politicians, could potentially influence young up and coming uh, activists to bring more attention to some of the atrocities that have happened in Israel. And given how a lot of those atrocities do happen to blacks and brown Israelis, not even just the Palestinians, like I'm talking about actual black Jewish people who live in Israel who may, may have always lived there, that could actually become a very contentious issue if left unchecked. And we, because like even like what Colin just brought up, right? You got the Roe v. Wade decision, you have the gun law decision. Will our politicians actually do anything based off of like anything that we say, any activism that we may, we may pursue? No, probably not. But the conversation is being had. Why? Because of the conversation that politicians are having. And they want to control those conversations because you control the activism. And if you can control the activism, you can control the narrative. And if you control the narrative, you can usually control the outcome. But even though you can control a politician, if you don't have control over that narrative, we've seen things spin out of control to the degree that we have a guy in the White House right now who probably isn't supposed to be there, but he was the last option that they could get away with. And he doesn't even know where he's supposed to sit, sit when he goes into meetings. So, like, you've got to have control over that narrative um, so you can have control over the activism. Dr. Colin Campbell. Yeah, I, I think that, again, this is just going to be one of those things that uh, black Americans are really going to overlook when mm-hmm. the time comes. Um, you know, th- they're just, again, many more important issues that they're going to be paying attention to. Uh, we do have issues that within Israel, you do have those who disagree with the government, who do want to see more outreach and overtures given to Palestinians. But again, this is more of an internal issue. Um, again, when you look at foreign policy and the way that black Americans are looking at foreign policy, they, if they are studying this, uh, you do hear conversations about how are they treating the black citizenry there, but it's often an afterthought and it is well uh, diminished in comparison to the overall issues that are really being addressed in a substantive way. What do I mean by this? Let's look at Ukraine. When we looked at the uh, the invasion of Ukraine, when we looked at the amount of money that the U.S. was going to give to Ukraine, for example, one of the afterthoughts and one of the, you know, behind the headline stories was the way that African immigrants were treated when they wanted to leave Ukraine to try to escape danger and war and being shelled, right? Well, we realized that story lasted, you know, a few days. And then it was buried behind the headlines. Uh, if you did look for it uh, in, in black press, you might find stories on that. And that's the same when it comes to Israel. We do know if, uh, there are certain factions and, uh, and groups that live outside of some of the major conurbations in Israel, uh, almost living in an excluded or an ostracized society because they aren't as accepted in Israel. But again, these are issues that you will only really find out if you really try to focus and dig and explore for them, or if you know people from those communities. I did meet a woman uh, several years ago who was a mother of a colleague who did live in one of these colleagues uh, outside of the exurbs in Israel. And of course, you know, they're looking for acceptance, but this doesn't work. And, but, you know, never mind that the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel that we see in New York every now and then, I have no idea what their affiliation is, but the average American, are they even paying attention to these issues? Definitely not, right? There, again, there are way other, more issues, uh, bigger issues, and definitely more issues of note that the average American is paying attention to, that black Americans are paying attention to. I really don't think this is one of them. I just want to say, like, 
that to, to some degree, maybe when we're talking about just strictly voting, that's true. But whereas in your purview, like that issue as far as Africa, Africans being mistreated by the Ukrainians, like it might have disappeared from your purview, but I see it all the time. In my timeline, I'm, I'm black, just in case you're curious, Colin, but I see it all the time in my feeds. A lot of the reason that you see a lot of, like, you don't see almost any black support for this war that you may have seen in the beginning was because that issue, although they weren't loud about it, which, because it's kind of hard to be loud about black issues because you're always being attacked, because you never know where the strays are going to come from when you are loud. You just, it's quiet. We discuss it amongst ourselves, but that doesn't mean it's not important. And it doesn't mean that you won't see a level of activism for it on the ground. And, I, and it's like, it doesn't take 50% of the country to change any particular issue. It just takes a loud 2 or 3% of the country. And so I think that, although you're correct, there are more impactful issues, like immediately impactful issues to the black community, but that doesn't mean that these issues aren't a big deal. So although the average black American may not vote based off of an issue like Israel or Ukraine, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't care about it. Um, it just means that the way they may activate to do something about that issue or to talk about that issue or to, to address the issue may look different than the voter, the voter booth. Because like, I want to be honest, most black Americans don't believe their vote actually counts. And like, let's be real, it probably doesn't count all that much. So if the average black American may worry about more impactful issues immediately when it comes to voting, but that doesn't mean the issue isn't important to them and they just don't address it in different ways. Well, moving to our next subject, Ukraine, uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson went to Kiev Friday and said that Great Britain will provide training for 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers every 120 days. Scott Ritter writes, Ukrainian officials themselves admitting casualty rates of 200 plus killed and 500 plus wounded per day. There is no way Johnson's offer of training could reverse the inevitable tide of Ukraine's losing, losing strate strategic military defeat. With Ukraine losing 10,000 troops every two weeks, the British offer to replace them every four months rings hollow. The reality is, and I think this. The fact of the matter is this. Ukraine is a country that's set up against a superpower. What is going on with them now is inevitable. It was always inevitable. It's the United States against Mexico. It's China versus Taiwan. It's Bambi versus Godzilla. Eventually, they're going to get ground into dust. And the true tragedy in a way here is that the U.S. and the EU is not saying, look, they're, they're, they're losing a lot of people. They're losing a whole generation of people. Let's have some kind of a diplomatic end to this. All wars end in diplomatic ends, even if it's an unconditional su surrender. The tragedy to the Ukrainian people is that their, pe their, their young men are getting wiped out, and really we need a diplomatic solution. They'll start with you, Colin. Yeah, and, and just to reiterate a point before, when we're looking at some of the top issues in America, we're looking at gun violence, we're looking at the way we could pay our groceries, Medicare, Medicare and things like that. Although there may be a lot of black Americans paying attention to foreign policy issues, when you look at the top five issues that most of Americans, most of us are paying attention to, the war in Ukraine, treatment of black black uh, Africans in Ukraine, that's not really going to resonate when you're looking at people being shot on your block, uh, when you can't pay for gas, when you can't pay for medical care, when you're struggling to pay rent, when you're looking at all these other issues, even now, women's health care. Those are going to be some of the top things that are looking at. Now, when we're looking at Ukraine and Russia, uh, this is, again, very troubling for those who are looking at the amount of money that the U.S. is putting into this. And that's why I think that the Democrats and the Biden administration are really worried about what's happening right now. When you look at the statistics and the report that uh, 
that all of you have read today, and we look at the number of shells that Russia is able to uh, to uh, ex to um, fire, 60,000 approximately a day, and we look at the Persian Gulf War and the U.S. using 60,000 rounds throughout the entirety of that of that offensive. That is deeply troubling when you look at what the inevitability is as the result of this conflict. Billions of tens of billions of dollars being put into this, another hundreds of millions put on top of that. Where does that leave the average American and our budget as we sink and have sunk so much money into what could be a losing uh, a losing venture. Uh, and I, I do feel that uh, the Biden administration is looking at this right now. Uh, they're, they're hoping that, again, there will be less of an emphasis on this uh, financial obligation and commitment to this conflict than there are now to, again, the, some of the domestic issues that are roiling Americans as we speak. Final uh, issue for us as we uh, wrap up this week's news coverage Julian Assange put on suicide watch after Patel decision, according to John Shipton, uh, Julian Assange's father, uh, Nico House. He should have been free. Uh, this, this decision is going to have ripple effects for the entire journal, journalism community, uh, for the whistleblower community, because obviously we saw Chelsea Manning was punished. And then even after she was free or acquitted, rather, not acquitted, excuse me, she was um what was the clemency? Was she granted clemency? I believe it was. Uh, yeah, matter. Yes. They, they still arrested her again for a situation related to Julian Assange. Or maybe her sentence uh, was commuted. I think it was a commuted, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and they just arrested her again, put her in some senior grand jury. Like, it, it, what we're seeing is that uh, telling the truth might be the most dangerous offense in the United States. Uh, it might be the most dangerous offense in the entire Western world now because we've seen that the long arm of the United States can actually stretch all the way into the UK. Um, you know, in this particular case, Ecuador, how he was, you know, taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy the moment that the, the United States got a president in power that they control Australia. That's where, uh, you know, Julian Assange is, is a citizen of like the United States tentacles can reach that far. Uh, how much hope do we have at home? You know, they can, they can, they can sanction your bank account. They can sanction your livelihood just for being honest. That's scary. Let me add this, Colin. Uh, I'll make this quick. If Donald Trump becomes president and he has both houses of um, of Congress in 2024, don't you think the New York Times and the Washington Post better look over their backs? Because if they print one thing from the government that he doesn't want, he's going to do the exact same thing to them. That's where I think these people are so blind. Colin. Yeah, definitely. I mean, members of the press definitely are not blind to this. We saw that there were overtures to try to get members of the press out of the White House because they were printing uh, and sharing news or delivering news that the former president didn't agree with. There were those reporters who, were, who he felt were more antagonistic towards him than others. Of course, the ones that he liked were the ones who shared his political ideology and lauded him in a very partisan way, even though they're supposed to be journalists. So yes, there is a reason to be trepidatious about a very partisan president who even takes that line and boundary and stretches it into what we consider the fourth estate that is supposed to hold government officials accountable in an impartial and neutral way, even though we have seen even that 
type of delivery and extemporization slide over the past several years. Nico House, Dr. Colin Campbell, gentlemen, both, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends. We look forward to having you back. You the same, guys. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out. 